Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. My name is C.R. Wiley, and today we have a special live edition of the podcast. What I mean by live is we actually have a live studio audience. Studio audience. And we're streaming on Facebook at the uh, Theology Podcast page. Just want you to know, and we have drinks coming in, and everybody is very happy. Cheer again, people. Anyway, uh, I want you to know that Glenn Sunshine just saved the day. What happened was, is uh, apparently I had hit a switch on the card that records the show, and I didn't realize I was doing, I did that. And I was like, okay, panic time. This is not going to happen. We have all these people here, and we're not going to be able to record anything. And then Glenn said, you know what? You probably turned that switch on the card. And so we need to give Glenn a uh, kudos for his technological brilliance. I didn't realize you were a techie, Glenn. I'm not. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I noted, I'm C.R. Wiley, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and we're in a different location today. We're actually at Willowbrew, the Willimantic Brewing Company in Willimantic, Connecticut, and Willowbrew is probably one of the top, if not the top, uh, brew pubs in Connecticut. And so we're really glad to be here, and we've got my regular friends, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Why don't you start, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, Professor of History at Central Connecticut State University and Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And today we have a special guest, that's uh, Dr. Benjamin Merkel, the president of New St. Andrews College, and the, the reason, the excuse, <laughs> for having this event. So, uh, Dr. Merkel, please introduce yourself. Yeah, well, so, uh, as you mentioned, Ben Merkel, I'm president of New St. Andrews College. We're up in Moscow, Idaho. Tend to draw students from the classical Christian education world, which I think is what we're going to be discussing, and real privilege to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I was up in, of course, Moscow for the first time with my wife, and we were there back in April for the Grace Agenda Conference. And it's a surreal place to visit. The Palouse. I had never even heard of the Palouse. But it, the Palouse is just like uh, otherworldly uh, terrain. Yeah, it's a really beautiful spot. And, it is. And, but it is very surreal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was told when I was there that the topsoil is 50 feet deep. Is that right? Or is that an exaggeration? Or uh, I have no idea on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's supposed to be ridiculously fertile. I mean, it's just yeah. the Palouse is known for these rolling hills that extend for... I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 miles in every direction from Moscow. And um, there are these really intensely rolling hills that are all farmed. And because they're all farmed, it means that um, you, the, the color um, shift in the, in the terrain is really strong. So you have, you know, when the crops come, this really lush green, and then it turns to golden because it's mostly barley and wheat. Yeah, yeah. And then in the winter, we get a good bit of snow. So it's always changing, but it is this just surreal, really intensely rolling hills. Well, it, what it reminded me of is the Sierra Desert, but green. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the sense that, and it, I believe it's the product of a glacier. That's what I've been could, told. It could be, yeah, yes. Yeah. That, that sounds believable. <laughs> anyway, it's a neat place to visit. If you ever get a chance to go out to Moscow, it's worth the trip for a number of reasons. But anyway, why don't we focus in on the subject of the day? And the subject of the day is classical Christian education. And at my church, uh, Dr. Merkel is going to be presenting in Sunday school tomorrow, and he's actually preaching for us. Uh, but in Sunday school, he's going to be addressing the question, what are we talking about when, it, when we're talking about classical 
Christian education or just classical education. And uh, rather than steal your thunder, I know you've talked about this at least once before. A couple of times, yes. <laughs> why, why don't you explain to us what it is? In uh, classical education, well, um, it is. Uh, it connects to Moscow just because it goes back to um, in the year uh, 1980, my father-in-law um, interested in starting a school for his daughter, my wife, uh, wanted um, to have a robust uh, Christian education for his daughter, and so um, he was inspired by an essay by Dorothy Sayers, um, The uh, Lost Tools of Learning, which um, broke down or proposed the, the experiment of breaking down um, uh, the K-12 education experience in terms of the trivium, the three parts of uh, the initial classical education, which would be uh, uh, rhetoric, logic, uh, and grammar. And, um, and uh, basically proposing that as three stages in education, starting with grammar, moving to logic, then finishing with rhetoric, that took kids through um, in grammar, it was a lot of memorization, the learning of rules is taking advantage of the inclination that young kids have to recite and memorize and their actual joy at memorizing things. Then moving to that precocious stage when they want to actually argue when most schools take that argument as a sign of disobedience or something right, like that. Right. But instead actually embracing that as something that God is doing in their minds and teach them the laws of logic and how to actually invite them so into in other words debate. a teacher would say you disagree with me here's how to do it Ex exactly yeah <laughs> exactly well. <laughs> yeah well i mean that's the stage that so many kids actually um it really is remarkable when you go into these schools um there's a liveliness to elementary that is completely sucked out of the room by high school and it happens in that junior high stage where um argument is taken as disobedience and it's pushed and made silent um, mm. Christian schools in particular, I think, do that. Yeah, right. They, they right. think that, that argument is a sign of disrespect or something like that. Right. Yeah. But actually take advantage of that moment and teach people how to argue and not be unsettled by the fact that we have a disagreement and how to do it rightly. And then in rhetoric is that moment when uh, students move into high school and they become intensely self-aware of how they're coming across to others. And no. <laughs> so, so again, take advantage of that moment and teach them that's what rhetoric is, is yeah. learning how, what that's supposed to look like. Right, right. So, so that was um, the birth of this school, Logos School in 1980, that take that. But there are more elements to it as well, an emphasis on classical languages as well as a real um, deference towards uh, the great books and classical learning. And you put all that together and you had the launch of classical Christian education. Uh, 1990. Uh, my father, this is Doug, Doug Wilson, wrote the book uh, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, inspired by Sayers' yeah, By essay. the way, I was, it's, he told me the story of how it got published. It's oh, hilarious. I, you know, I, I would be interested <laughs> to hear it, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, we won't go into it now. Okay. But you can ask <laughs> me afterwards. There is always a story with him. Um, so anyhow, that became a, a book, and there were a number of schools that either um, saw that book as representing what they were attempting to do, or were inspired to then launch something because of that book. And you had this kind of coming together that formed Association of Classical Christian Schools and the launch of Classical Christian Schools across the US. And then that spilled over into the homeschooling world until I think now you have probably three times as many kids doing classical Christian something on the homeschooling side yeah. compared to those that are in the classical Christian schools. Well, I know we just, uh, last weekend, John Sunday, didn't they have a, an event at your church, Classical Conversations? But how many people do you think came out to that? Uh, I think there was 
70 yeah. people yeah. from the area came out to talk about how to do classical education within a homeschool environment. And that uh, the Bortons, I, I was talking with Robert Bortons, his mom was the one who started Class Conversations. He said she read Recovering Lost Tools of Learning. Gotcha. And that was the launch of, of that movement, which is right. massive now. Right, right. Well, that's great. That's a great background to that. And just a note for 70 people to come out to that New England. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're, so, we're, talking, so about, knows we're, we're talking, talking about a third great awakening yes, here. Yeah, we are. We're on the verge. We were on the verge. <laughs> anyway, well, that's great stuff. Any, any thoughts from you guys, Glenn or Tom, on, on this? Have you guys been exposed to this at all? I've been exposed to it a little bit, and it seems to me everything about it just makes a whole lot of sense. And as someone who teaches, I am going to get myself fired. Uh, as someone who teaches Go for it, in a Go for it. university in Connecticut, what I can tell you is that homeschoolers and classical education, these are the people who are going to take over the world. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the products that are coming out of the public school system, it, it's disastrous. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to, to put this in perspective, I may have told this story before on the podcast, I don't know, but last semester, last spring, I did a course on early modern Europe. And in the final exam, one of the questions that I asked was, what is the relationship between Napoleon and the French Revolution? Was he a champion of the revolution or did he betray it? This is really a tricky question, and it's intentionally tricky. I wanted to see how the students were thinking. I found out they weren't. <laughs> one of my students answered the question by referring to Napoleon all the way through his paper from beginning to end as Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Except in one case where he shortened it to the last name of Dynamite. <laughs> These are the I, people we're handing the world over to. I, I looked at this and I said, I need to retire. <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite is filmed in southern Idaho, which I think is our other great contribution to <laughs> Western culture. Academic discourse, yes. <laughs> No, I think it's true that one of the things you notice that now, um, I think I heard Ben Sass speaking recently, and he noted that um, the first two years of college are now mostly remedial. Yeah. Uh, where um, it's why there's so much um, there's so much possibility of doing like dual enrollment or online whatnot, uh, where you can knock out the first couple years of college because actually it's just remedial because they're trying to give you what you should have already gotten in high school. Or junior high. Uh, yeah. Yes. Right, right. Any thoughts, Tom? Yeah, uh, you know, maybe, you know, separate referential here, but uh, one of the things is I, I did grow up in a very conservative Christian home, although I didn't embrace any of that at those early years, but one of the things that indirectly cultivated me was a lot of the way in which they were basically an instantiation of classical education. They were, through their form of witness, very committed to a certain kind of rationality and a certain kind of cultivation that indirectly was forming me. And so when I went through high school, the relativism, the university, and the really hyper-relativism, I just didn't find it very attractive. I found it kind of disturbing and, and kind of weak. Mm -hmm. And so while everyone else was attracted, like this was a new form of liberation, I realized that this just really didn't have anything to it because of that initial formation. And it was actually my attraction to figures like Lewis, Tolkien, and uh, yeah. different, different figures like that that kept drawing me closer and closer towards sort of the Christian witness, and I didn't understand at that time why. And so, of course, later, um, I, I really grew in opposition to the direction that most of my university education was going, 
to appreciate all of that kind of classical vision of education. So, I mean, I, I, for me, I had to do it a lot on my own. I didn't have a homeschooling or that. I mean, I was it's Mortimer Adler. I would find these right, different figures right. that were, I mean, really the biggest, probably the largest impact was me out of intellectual curiosity being finding Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And all of a sudden you saw someone who started to see uh, reality and logic is, uh, and being in logic so interconnected. And then, then as I started to see the way that the church employed that, I was like, well, all these people crit criticizing the church is something that's about to be done away with. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. You don't realize they have something. They have something you're not even you're not even able to handle. Right. Um, and so I think it was through that, and, and just my my um, my continuous rigor to actually learn those skills. A lot of it I had to teach myself because I didn't have those advantages. By going back to these kind of classic figures and classic thought, that allowed me to flourish in academics. Yeah. And actually, when I got into to to my doctoral work, especially, I found other people there homeschooled through these classical education. Yeah, yeah. They rose to the top academically because of that very thing. Right. And uh, the the trendy, attractive stuff, it, it just you know, it lost its vigor after a while. I think in, you know. Which shut up at this point, but the spiritual right. intuition I think that is connected to it was what's missing in other types of education. Well, when you master the cliches and the jargon, what more is there to do? And that's, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Right. So um, now tell us a little bit about New St. Andrews, because it's a fascinating school, and sure. it's a school really that I think is the ideal school to go to if you've been classically educated, whether at home or in a classical Christian school. Tell us a little bit about New St. Andrews. Yeah, so New St. Andrews started in 94. So if you do the math, Logos School started in 1980. Hmm. Uh, my wife was a kindergartner in that first class at Logos School, and in 94 would be when she had graduated Now we Logos. understand what's motivating. Yes. No, my, my, uh, my wife will say that her spiritual gift is being a guinea pig. Um, she describes uh, being in a senior year in high school and people saying, where are you going to go to college? And my dad's going to start me one. Uh, so, so, yeah. Here, daughter, a gift. So, uh, so NSA started in 94, and, um, and it was uh, really about being a successor to that classical Christian education. So um, I, when I speak to, um, you know, schools, when I go to ACCS schools and, and speak to them, one of the things I tell them is, you know, the sad thing is uh, you're being ruined for college um, ah. because, uh, because you are, um, most kids that are coming out of that kind of rigorous education, they go into their freshman year at college mm -hmm. and it's, it's below the level of discourse they yeah. had in their senior year at high school. So the idea is we wanted to create a school that would be the right, um, trajectory for um, for these students um, and it started and it's just um, in one sense it's an experiment in another sense it's you're not really experimenting because you're actually just recovering something it's been done for a very long time mm -hmm. so there's an element of experimentation to it but it's also a fairly time-tested sort of curriculum which is uh, recovering the uh, classical liberal arts um, so NSA started in 94, you know, some of the distinctives about NSA, one of the things that sets us apart is we're one of the few schools that doesn't take federal money. Um, so um, no student loans, no Pell Grants, try to keep our tuition affordable and focus all of our uh, money on actually just the faculty and the actual teaching experience. Fairly robust classical liberal arts education. We're a very small school, so we're right at... Well, you were rated number two recently by a publication as an, in the list of great book schools. Yes. I, yeah, I, I, that's one of those things where when you see that, you're like, 
we're going to share that on Facebook. I have no idea <laughs> how we got on it or if there's you're, any you're, meaning. You're, to, you were rated ahead of Columbia exactly, and University yes. of Chicago. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put the feather in my cap. I don't know how I got it, but uh, yeah, it, it is. I mean, in all honesty, I do think we have a really one of the most robust and intense uh, liberal arts educations around. It is really, really remarkable. Um, we're in a small little community, and so in one sense, the community is almost as important as, as the college itself. It's a small college, 200 students. Um, but when I see that, now people who, who see that who maybe are thinking about UConn, which is like 30,000 students, right. they might say, well, what, what could they do? Well, Harvard was once 200 students. Princeton was once 200 students. Right. You know, and the quality of education when Harvard was 200 students is better <laughs> than Harvard today in many respects. Oh, by a long shot. And I mean, just the, um, the dynamic of being able, I, so I have the students, I have the freshman class over to my house for dinner once a week. Mm. Um, every Tuesday night, uh, 50 kids show up <laughs> at my house for free dinner. I mean, you're a freshman in college, of course. Yeah, sure, you come, right, right, right. But it means that we actually have like a very warm uh, connection to the students. Um, and that's true, I think, with a lot of the faculty. There's just a real tight-knit um, community that the, the students know their faculty, have babysat for their faculty, have been over for dinner regularly with the faculty. Mm -hmm. And it, there's, there's um, the intellectual rigor combined with the actual Christian soul formation right. that happens, I think is really remarkable. Well, you know, each of us, you know, Tom, Glenn, and I have all taught Obviously, Glenn and Tom are, are doing it now. I did it a while back. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, that particular dimension that you just described would actually be discouraged in some environments. Yeah, I, I was actually speaking to a, a prophet Alabama um, last year who he was just telling me over the last five years how he has reconfigured his entire professional strategy to um, minimize at all costs any actual contact with a student. The, the reason being because every time you're in contact with a student, you are vulnerable to a lawsuit or a complaint or something like that. And so everything he did, he deliberately moved an hour out of town and um, he changed his whole lecture schedule and everything. So because he said it's just pure survival. I, I yeah, don't right. want to be where they can talk right. to me right. because of the lawsuits that could follow. Think about that. Think about how far have we come from the ancient view or the understanding of the peripatetic, you know, you actually hang out with this guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, walk around with him every day. Walk around the park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if you look at the medieval universities, which are, you know, the university is a medieval invention. What you had were a series of residential colleges of the sort that you get at Oxford or someplace right. like that, where the students lived with the faculty, they ate with the faculty, they took classes with the faculty. It was all an integrated system built around relationships as well as scholarship. Now, speaking of Oxford, we got two Oxford guys yeah. here today. <laughs> you know, Ben and Tom are both Oxford PhDs. Is that still the case now, what you just heard Glenn describe? Um, I had some personal connection, and I would say pretty minimized. I mean, it, I, it, to be honest, it really amounted to having tea a couple times down in the commons. <laughs> yeah, right. Mine was right. the exact opposite. Mine was in the Priory of Christ, uh, lived in the Priory of Christ Church, but uh, every 
seminar was done within the household mm. of, of profe the professor. And again, okay. this could be the peculiar professor. Mine was a devout Christian. Right. Um, and second, secondly, all of our tutorials were done within the, the house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, I think it, it may be who you're getting. Yeah, right. But I right. think classically in Oxford, yeah. you were supposed to be very connected. Well, you know, when you like you see, now. you know, uh, films about Lewis or Tolkien, you know, they, they, they show them in their, in their, their study, study usually, with, yeah. with a student and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, that's fascinating stuff. So, uh, describe a little bit for us, uh, you know, how the, the, the work of New St. Andrews sort of builds on what goes on in sort of the classical Christian high school. Now you described the trivium, you mm -hmm. talked about the various, you know, the three different parts of it. Is it just a continuation of that or is there something different that you do? Well, it, it's, it's definitely built on that. It's presupposing uh, that that is there. Now there is, um, we, we get probably about 45% of our kids come from a classical Christian school, 45% come from homeschooling of some sort and 10% fall out of the sky from who knows where. Um, so th there's there's um, frequently a little bit of remedial something that has to happen to help people um, get up to speed and get going. But our real goal is to um, take that foundation and build onto it. Well, there's different ways of describing this. If I want to put it in professional vocational terminology, which I think cheapens it a bit, but is um, the easiest, most translatable way to describe it, what we want to do is uh, inculcate the soft skills of leadership. Um, so that has to do with um, the ability to digest a, a significant chunk of information, either in lecture or in uh, reading, um, off by yourself reading, to be able to prepare for uh, an, an intense small group roundtable discussion where you're going to have to hold your own in an, in an argument and be able to, so you've processed the information, have the critical thinking skills to work through the problem, and then have the ability to step forward and present, both in the, um, in the written word and in the spoken word. So we want students up in front speaking often, but we also want them cranking out papers like crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, um, and those, those skills, honestly, are the skills that are most uh, missing in the workforce now. Yeah, that's so weird. It's, but, and, yeah. and I think they're the skills that yeah. um, move a person from the entry-level position into the positions of management and leadership. Right. Can you, you know the entry-level skills, but do you know how to make eye contact with other people? Right. And be able Unlike to... Unlike Alistair McGrath, who we were just talking about, who <laughs> can't seem to maintain eye contact. That's right. Well, <laughs> it, it, it is, 40 books a year. It is uh, these things that you, they go a little bit overlooked, but you spend so much time on these professional skills, and then you miss some of the real basics of like how to actually just lead people yeah um, so those are the things that we tend to focus on I think it's much larger than vocational application but that's certainly one place where it really registers oh that's great stuff anything you guys want to leap in on there with that yeah this is kind of terrifying to me <laughs> um, I had one of my colleagues daughters in one of my classes and he told me afterwards that she said and I quote you know the problem with Professor Sunshine is when he assigns us to read something he expects us to understand it. <laughs> Sir, I see uh, Joseph Lee nodding. <laughs> Joseph taught uh, English at UConn for years. You know and, and yeah when I assign something I do expect them to understand it but it absolutely horrifies me that 
they don't expect to be able to understand it, and they seem to be incapable right. of understanding it. And they're it. okay with that. Yeah. And they're okay with right. it, yeah. Right. And, and what, what you're describing, it's like, yeah, this is the way it should work, but it really doesn't in my world. And, and Glenn, I just have to give you congratulations, because most of my students say, oh, we're supposed to read this? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, right. yeah, there, there is this habitual laziness, I think, that, uh, and that the, the, somehow the, the professor is expected to come to a certain merciful uh, episode when it comes right. to grading. It's all about mercy. It's, it's all, all about, about yeah. God, it's, it's God is love. God is love. Mercy, which is a very complicated area. Or you provide yeah. them, in my case, they expect me to provide them with a study guide or explain to them what it is that they just read. Yeah. I assume that they are yeah. smart enough to figure this out yeah. on their own, yeah. Yeah. and yet, evidently, their entire experience was tell me what it says, tell me what yeah. it means, and I'll just go well, with you. A good example of that, when I, I remember when I um, first showed up at Oxford, and this, this was one of the things that Oxford did to me that was great, was um, mm -hmm. I showed up for a class on the Psalms, and, um, and I had a bit of Hebrew, and brought my Hebrew Bible, but um, I remember the instructor saying, okay, you know, open up Psalm 2, let's, let's dive in, and suddenly realizing the expectation that when he said that, he meant, open it up in Hebrew and yep. read it and understand it in the Hebrew as we're going. Yeah. Whereas for me, the study of a foreign language has always, had always been about doing Hebrew exercises. It had not really been about really reading the Hebrew text and, and yeah. using it as a tool. But that expectation, that's something we really work to inculcate. Well, the side note, that Hebrew instructor, or that uh, instructor in the Psalms class is now the academic dean at NSA. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. And, <laughs> I like you. You've got a job. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's one of the things. So now language at NSA, um, we require three years of classical language, and uh, learning language means learning the language, means reading the text in the original and discussing the text in the original. Nice. Yeah, nice. That, that's classic Oxford, and that's one of the things that, that drove me to it and, and had me work as hard as I did. I wrote on, on uh, a German modern theologian, um, Paul Fittis at the Regents Park was one of my examiners, and he's a very dramatic and a brilliant man. He also has a photographic memory. I remember during my dissertation. Don't you hate those guys? I, I did because <laughs> I was looking for the page and he could tell me which page my answer was on. But one of the dramatic moments was when it came to, because I was dealing with uh, the 1920s material of Karl Barth, which had not been translated up to this point. Uh, okay. And he wanted to make sure I actually read it and understood it. So he walks down in the Oxford Cape. It's flowing. It's a dark room. I'm scared. This is like and going out puts, of Hogwarts. He, yes, that's right. But he doesn't put my dissertation in front of me. He puts the original German in front of me and says, read. Probably the most intense moment in my life. Fortunately, because I knew from my supervisor how to prepare, I was able to do it. Yeah. But that sounds it like Augustine told a legge. Yeah. It was. Yeah, right. um, but that's, I think, what you're preparing people to do that most yeah. academics are not doing. So, so the um, first year Latin final at NSA will be uh, a one-on-one -on -one examination with you and the instructor. No place to hide. No place to hide. It's one on one, and the and it's a it's just a conversation in Latin. Capes, capes. No, there, no there, capes. there are robes. There, okay. there are robes. I don't know I that I go fully to cape. That's, that just suggests a little more than we've got. But, but no, it's a, it's a conversation right, right. in Latin. So you right. have to actually be able to speak back and forth in right. Latin. Well, that's that's great stuff. 
Now, uh, we've had a chance now to uh, kind of introduce what the nature of classical Christian education is all about and what's going on at NSA. And we have a live studio audience. Everybody cheer. <laughs> now, is there anyone who has a question for Ben or anybody else uh, about classical, ed Christian ed or classical education in general or about NSA? Any hands? Anybody out there? Yeah, Chris. Uh, questions for Ben. Uh, so my church is considering trying to establish a classical Christian school or classical school. Uh, what steps do you think would be beneficial and very initial, can we do this? How do we go about it? Most of the congregation's kids are between just born and five or six. So first steps. Um, most of the people that are moving that direction usually have already started with some sort of like homeschooling co-op. Uh, so it usually begins there and then you get sort of this critical mass within your homeschooling co-op where you realize you're ready to actually uh, make the leap. Um, I think, well, a self-serving suggestion would be send somebody to NSA, <laughs> then they can come back and be one of your teachers. Yeah, uh, right. we, do, we, we do have more requests for NSA grads to be teachers across the U.S. than we have NSA grads uh, by a long shot. Oh. But I, I think one of, the, one of the things you want to do, um, well, you, you already have done one of the most critical things, which is having a church behind it. I think having a church community supporting an education movement is just really critical. Schools that start without a church buy-in are constantly laboring to, to build something that really should be coming from the pulpit in some way. So I would say making sure you have the church involvement and possibly getting another couple churches behind it would be an important thing. And then that early vision of your board, finding the right people and spending a couple years reading and getting on the same page and then finding that right entrepreneurial headmaster who can really um, Now that's, a, that's a key, the entrepreneurial headmaster. Now yes. those two things often don't go together. No, they don't. Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you find that person? My, well, okay, this is a private theory that I have that I would, um, I think more people, well, I'd, I'd like to see this pushed. I think there are a lot of men who are in their uh, mid-50s who have had successful runs with either business or um, have retired from military or something like that who are thinking, what would I like to do for the next 15 years of my life? And I think um, we need to be recruiting more men like that who you've got your retirement, you, yeah, you could right. really focus yourself right. on something like this. Nice. Um, I, would, I would be looking for somebody like that who wanted to really own this, who had already had somewhat you know, degree of success in business so they understood how to run a budget, how to run employees and all of that and then um, give them a crash course in classical Christian education. You see, the thing is, is most people go the opposite. They do the opposite. Yeah. They, they start with, oh, you don't understand classical Christian education. Now we're going to try to help you understand how to run a business. Right. And, and I think that's rough because, um, well, it, you, you can go that direction. You can. The, the benefit of going the other direction is that um, a lot of these guys come with their retirement from the Navy yep. or whatever. Yep. And so you can float them more easily. Yep. Uh, if they're ready to really give themselves to the work. Um, but the other thing is, is leadership is, uh, it's hard to just teach that. You have to experience it. Yeah. And you have to spend a lot of time learning the, the tough lessons of... And that's one of the things that people who love education have a hard time accepting in my experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm from the world of, the ac of academics making the leap from being uh, an instructor to a president and realizing uh, what a leap that is. And, and, and I think that that can be a weakness on the academic side is that you tend to like to be able to be in sort of the ethereal platonic world of forms talking about your discipline and understanding how it actually impacts real life is something yeah. that... And not only that, I've actually come across people who have real distaste for competence in business, yeah. in academe. I mean, what I mean is, is they don't, they almost think, they almost treat these people as though they're lepers. Mm. Right. Yeah. Which, which class as lepers? Uh, businessmen. Oh, right. Yeah, mm. in other words, uh, you, you've sullied your hands with yes. mammon. <laughs> well, well it, it cracks me up. I, I mean, I, I have this conversation with NSA faculty oftentimes where I, I look at the students at NSA and, um, and you'll see a kid who, who can be a total numbskull but has just a lot of hustle. And, and, and I can see him and say, that is um, an NSA donor. <laughs> we want, we want that. We want to make kid. sure that yeah. kid graduates. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and I, I mean, they're 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 your like B plus, yeah, you know. But I they're know. but they're receiving the blessings. Oh, I know of exactly what you're talking about. And then you can get another kid who's just nailing everything exactly right, and you think, well, I, you're great, and I appreciate that, but you're not actually learning how to take this and do with it. The, I'm going to give you my, my, my way of explaining to people who love Marvel comics. The difference is between Tony Stark and Pepper Potts. <laughs> Pepper Potts has her PhD, and she makes a great administrative assistant. Okay. Tony Stark doesn't care about degrees. He cares right. about getting things invented and getting results. Getting things done. Yeah. He dro probably a dropout yeah. like Bill Gates. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's actually a really good point. I mean, I, I think that that's one of the, the difficulties that the universities have is that real innovative um, guys who are hustling, um, we, we tend to be, um, we, we sort of bump heads right. more than we ought. We ought to actually be lifting those guys up. Except for the, the development department. They love those guys. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. They're, they're constantly uh, schmoozing with those uh -huh. guys. But that's a, those are great insights. Any thoughts uh, from Glenn or Tom? I, I, mean, I have a, a, maybe it's a bit of a complicated question. Um, it's kind of, kind of, you know, draw out a lot of implications. But sometimes there's resistance, especially in the reformed world, to classical education. Um, a lot of that is because of its um, deep investment in things like uh, logic, classical rationality, um, the the um, philosophical world that help. Uh, set the table for a lot of those things. Um, and especially, I know, in the Protestant world, after Protestant liberalism of someone like Adolf von Harnack, who tried to make a strong division between the paganism of the Greeks and their Hellenization on the Christian gospel. And, and in contrast, um, I think when, when, some, when someone studies the history of Christianity and its entrance into the world beyond um, the Hebraic world, was the fact that it found a shared milieu in which the Logos, of course, um, Christ being the, the, the incarnate Logos, became a different point of contact, which gave a different relationship to the classical Greek forms of education. Right. David Schindler just did a, a thing at the area Pegasus lectures. On that very right, topic. Right, right. And so one of the things maybe the sort of pushback you may get from certain Christian circles that want a hyper-biblicism that doesn't realize that Christianity was the fulfillment not merely of the covenant with Israel but also the desire of the nations. 
and so how that may be impact yeah. to kind of the classical educational philosophy and theology. No, I, I think that that's I think that's really important. I mean, the, the hybrid biblicist movement is it doesn't seem like it can ever actually make good on its promises. Yeah, um, mm, that's a I'd love you to unpack that we just said. I think that might be all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I, I just I, 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 I cut you off. Let's just tweet that and leave it where it was. <laughs> no, no. I, what, what I mean is, is that um, you, the, the hyper biblicist movement. Um, there, there's a number of different iterations of something like that, but it can never actually sustain itself because you find out that the Bible actually was always situated in this larger culture that you, if you want to understand scripture in its context, you have to understand that context. And so you, um, you lose it if you try to remove the, the context. And it's, I mean, it's interesting that you can have folks in the reform world who are uh, nervous about it when we're talking about the education that the reformers themselves <laughs> had and that's passed right. on to yeah, others. That's right. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things I love to say is, all I want you to do is read what Calvin read. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, right. No more than that. And Unius, uh, another one. Yeah. Right, right. Well, this is great stuff. Is there another question from the floor? Anybody have something else to ask? Yeah, Matt. So, Glenn, you, you mentioned that you know, it's, it's kind of a scary fact. We're handing control over of our world to college graduates and people who are in the ranks of education. Um, and there's there's a sense in which classical classical education prepares people in a much more full sense, spiritually and physically, for the challenges of the world we face. But getting that competence and leadership into the workplace, you um, say, Andrews, you just said the. the that what the school does is it tends to produce teachers. It tends to produce graduates who go off and become teachers in these, in these different places. What, what's the pipeline for getting those skills into the workplace? Well, actually, so let me just go back a little bit on that. Um, I, I, I said that we get more requests for teachers for our school than we have graduates. Um, the truth is very few of them actually end up taking teaching positions. Um, and it's the sad truth that a lot of those classical Christian school teacher positions aren't offering strong salaries and they get salaries from, so I would say the bulk of our students are actually going into typical workforce type positions. Okay. Um, I, and so uh, the question then being, what's the, how do you make that, that jump from uh, education like NSA into workforce? I would say, um, yeah, that, that's, there's actually quite a lot to unpack to that. Um, I think that one of the best ways to move into the workforce, really um, um, vocationally specific degrees is really an inefficient way to train for particular career paths. Um, most career paths are far better opened up via an internship or something like that than an actual degree because um, the, the specific skills that you're learning on the job um, if they've taught you that at college, they would have taught you a set of skills that were outdated by 10 to 15 right, years. Right. And uh, what's, what the college is far better at doing is working on, um, if I was to use the image of a computer for a moment, you can imagine, um, you know, you, you get the PC, I'm going back. Um, yeah, a little right. while in technology right. here, right, right, right. but if you can imagine, you know, the old, the old PC days where um, you could buy the um, the speaker or the graphics card or the monitor, or you could invest money on the actual operating system, yeah. um, and which one is really going to be the the limiting? You know, what, what's going to take you the furthest? So, as a school, we're far better at working on your operating system, and then letting uh, the world of the workforce 
inculcate those specific skills. Now you need those skills, but I think you're better off learning them on the job because most of them are actually learned. I mean, when you, your first day at work, I remember um, I was a, a education undergrad and um, absolutely zero of anything that I learned in any education class at university <laughs> had any bearing on right. what happens in the actual classroom. Right. I learned to teach while student teaching. Um, and that's true most jobs. You learn the job when you show up at the job. Your college prepares you to be somebody who knows how to learn, who knows how to work, knows how to think, how to communicate, but the specific skills I think are best off offered on location. There are some exceptions. I think if you want to go into engineering, you have to have an engineering degree. You just do. Right. If, right. if you want to go into medicine, there's some very specific things. I don't want somebody on the job learning right. on right. me. Right. You know, <laughs> my dentist learning on the job would not be good. Right. There, right. So, so I, I think there's some certain pathways that are really important that you actually do need to go through, um, through, through particular programs. But for the most part, your undergraduate degree, I think you're far better off focusing on sharpening the overall operating system, and then from career to career, it depends on what you're looking at. I think that, but most of them are going to have better pathways in via internship or a simple one-year master's uh, to transition. So we have, like, uh, one example would be of one student who did NSA, then did his MBA at Vanderbilt. He's a VP at Goldman Sachs now, uh, leading investment. And, um, and he will say that when he graduated from NSA and walked into business, he was behind everybody else. They were ahead because they all had business undergrads. But at about six to eight months in, he said he reached um, parity with them. And by the time they graduated, he was far ahead. And the reason he was far ahead was because of the skills he learned in his NSA education. Because they knew, they knew the vocabulary that you right. mentioned earlier. Right. And when, once they have the vocabulary, then it, then it all becomes now, can you think, can you work, can you speak, can you convince? And that was the NSA education that right. they didn't have. Yeah. Now, yeah, can I go jump ahead, in at this sure. point? Go ahead, what, with the exception of certain technical fields, engineering, medicine, things like that, even if you're doing accounting, you're going to learn the specifics of the system of accounting at the job where you have it. The accounting degree is going to give you some basics, but you're going to learn the specifics of how your company wants to do it on the job. The bottom line here, what I always tell my students is, no one hires you for what you know. They hire you for what you can do. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at an education, what you should be looking at at a, in, at a college level is what is the skill set you're acquiring. And what, that's just a paraphrase of, of what Ken just said. You've got an incredible skill set coming out of a classical education that, gets, that can be applied in a multitude of different kinds of settings. Um, if you focus too narrowly, you know, get a, a professional degree or something like that, you are actually limiting your ability to advance because you get straightjacketed into a particular way of thinking, a particular way of problem solving, a particular way of approaching things, and it actually will work against you long term, whereas a more broad-based liberal arts, true liberal arts education gives you the flexibility to work in any number of different ways. The fact of the matter is, an incoming freshman now, the 
hot jobs in four years probably don't even exist right now. Right. So the fact mm -hmm. is that if you train for what's hot now, you're training for something that's going to be obsolete. Those are, those are great observations, Glenn. I, I've got something, though, that kind of is kind of, kind of out of left field, but I know you guys are... I'm probably are, going where you are. <laughs> you go first. Well, well it, I'm sure all of you are on the, on the same page with me on this. A liberal arts education historically was intended to make you a good citizen, mm -hmm. not a good employee. Mm -hmm. right. So, you know, res publica, you know, the idea that this is our tradition. You know, what we've been introduced to through our liberal arts education is the Western tradition. These are the... These are the the sources, the roots mm -hmm. that inform us. Uh, the fact that today no one thinks about that when they think about an education. They don't think about, I need to be a good citizen. I need to know how to per participate in you know, my public life. I, I know how to speak mm -hmm. in a public forum. I, you know, that, that's so far away, that's so far out of, what it reminds me of is, is you know, during you know, the Roman Empire when the Epicureans and the Stoic uh, philosophers were popular, it was more or less a sign of the end. Because at that point, what you had is philosophies of the private. You know, there were even Stoicism, how to kind of like you know, deal with the world that you have no control over. Mm -hmm. And you, you essentially are just sort of like, you know, it, it was, you know, when we talk about the history of philosophy, the Golden Age is Plato and Aristotle, the Silver Age is the Stoics and the Epicureans, you know. You, you, you're smiling and laughing. <laughs> you're heading right down my path. <laughs> yeah, go, take, take it over, take I mean, it over. In a different, a different way, but the same, ep uh, I think, emphasis that uh, Chris is going down is, is what, what about those aspects, um, the aspects of uh, classical education um, that are not pragmatically fruitful. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example in the field of theology. Is pragmatism is taken over to the point where doctrine doesn't really do anything unless it serves a kind of practical benefit for my best life now. Yeah, or a butts in the pews. Butts in the pews, that's right. <laughs> and so productivity on that end, whereas the, 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 um, the pursuit of the good, the beautiful, and the true, um, combined with the pursuit of Christ for Christ's own sake, yeah. Um, we're very much wrapped together in, 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 I think, the classical Christian vision in particular. And so, I mean, I know, I know as somebody who is both a theologian and puts a lot of emphasis on the contemplative task, which, which is kind of what we would kind of sometimes call the prophetic watchman, you know, the one who is able to, you know, he, he doesn't benefit in a monetary sense, usually you not know successfully. You know, we starve to death, but we watch the city for you. That's right. So while you're flourishing, remember, there, no, I'm just kidding. But, but the thing, that, but the back point is that there is a, um, a there is a set of ends um, that are not pragmatic or practical, but are spiritual, that are integrated into that rich, rich vision, uh, I think, of classical education. Yeah. That in, in, in oftentimes, it's just missing now, but classically, in the, in, in the, in the Protestant tradition, contemplation, um, God for God's own sake, chief end of humanity for God's own sake, the glorification of God for God's own sake. Those things were part and parcel to that fuller vision. I, I think that that is so important, and, and that's why, like when I start off talking about sort of the vocational side of yeah. NSA, I, I'm, I do so apologetically almost because um, I think one of the one of the most devastating plays that has been run on the church is yeah. the way that we have accepted this premise that education is about vocational certification. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, is, um, that is just universally assumed. There's a universal assumption that the name of your college undergraduate degree 
um, signifies the job that you will have yeah. after graduation, which is um, so easily demonstrated to be false. Just uh, the, the data is there that none of us stick with with that job. It's a very small percentage, and it, and and it's shrinking every year as the workforce becomes far more dynamic than mm -hmm. that. Um, but but college is like that because we have to explain why it is that you're going to go into debt for an overpriced degree. We have to be able to show we, we you know project for you That's in our right. imagination this this um, revenue flow that you're going to have. That's right. But but so we've told everybody that college is about vocational certification when it's actually about far more. Yeah. And and the problem is is as soon as you start to have that conversation about yeah. it being more than that. Because the conviction that college is really about vo vocational certification is so deep, okay. they, they when they hear you say that, yeah. they, what they hear is, oh, what you're telling me is you're trying to sell me on a career path that will make no money. It's going to be, <laughs> you're telling me about like a career path where I'll be a barista for life, and you're just trying to put a sunny face on it. You'll have a rock to sleep on, you might be crucified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Now, I'd like to take, I'd like yeah. to take another sort of, uh, a, a sort of a oblique sort of angle at this. I was talking to Roger online the other day about some of the things that characterize Moscow, Idaho, and sort of the unique character of uh, New St. Andrews. Yeah. Now, now, Roger, you're a graduate of Thomas Aquinas, and yeah, and Casey too. So uh, maybe I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you were expressing some interest in sort of the entrepreneurial aspect of the kind of Moscow New St. Andrews sort of ethos. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, that's so coming from a, a Catholic liberal arts background, and I have a lot of association with Thomas More College in New Hampshire as well, kind of a variation mm -hmm. on our theme. Um, overwhelming number of graduates go on to either the academy or teaching classes with Christian school. Mm -hmm. And they're almost all, you know, you've got, or quite a lot of them are mm -hmm. very impoverished. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what Tom was just describing. Yeah. That's what Ron I was talking about. The rock <laughs> all that metaphor, it was dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a highly cerebral subculture where to really have status within the culture, as an outsider, I'm a convert, you know, looking at it, it, it yeah. you have to be in the academy or something like it. And mm -hmm. the entrepreneurial activities, it's almost kind of a medieval aversion to it. Yeah. Persistence of that. So from what I've heard about MSA, uh, that that's not the case. Right. And, and I was actually curious, the question I had was, so how does your reformed identity impact your approach to classical education that would set you apart, your institution apart from the Catholic equivalent? So let me just sort of provide a little more framework. When I was out in Moscow, I was impressed by the number of people in sort of the Christchurch community who had started businesses. Yeah. You know, so if you go down Main Street in Moscow, I, I'm not exaggerating. It strikes me as like maybe a quarter of the businesses on Main Street yeah, at are, least that, yeah. Yeah, are NSA yeah. or related to NSA or uh, Christchurch. I was, um, somebody, somebody was visiting Moscow recently, not a Christian or anything like that, but he was just telling me how he, had, uh, he was getting a coffee from a barista and asking for um, recommendations for a restaurant to eat at. And the... Um, they let them know that the bummer is that there are a lot of great restaurants in town, but the problem is they're all open. They're all owned by Christians, and so they're closed on Sunday. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I thought, wow, I mean, like, that's, not, that's not like a policy that right. we're like trying to inflate, but, but it is just like the natural outcome right, right. of having a, a robust right. evangelical congregation. Right, right. Um, but yeah, no, there is a real um, uh, there is a real entrepreneurial mindset, and I I think that is I. I 
I have to struggle to like express it because I don't think we've actually really examined it in certain ways. But part of it, there's, it's just the natural overflow of your Protestant theology, the um, sacredness of all work, that, that everything, uh, you can glorify God in all vocations, as well as just a robust love of life and celebration. I mean, feasting has always been a big part of our community, as well as we actually have one elective. This is the one that is, um, it, it just sort of struggles on the borderline of, is this really a class? But it's <laughs> aesthetic gastronomy. That's great, I'd like to of, take that class. It's a course of readings, but also a lot of eating. And, and strangely, that is really why there are a bunch of restaurants Isn't that in, wild? in downtown. Now, I know a mutual friend of ours is Francis Fukushan. Yes. Who was a world-class yes. chef he in was France. A Michelin, he was a chef at a Michelin-started restaurant in Lyon, where he <laughs> trained. And, uh, and he did open a restaurant in Moscow for a number of years called West of Paris. It's not there now, but the, the ripple effect of his gastronomy Well, you know, the, the thing about us is he told me the story behind it. He wanted to pay for his sons to go to NSA. Yes. So uh -huh. what was his solution? Yes. Take out a loan? No. <laughs> Start, Start a restaurant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting point of contact. I think between the question you're saying and what he's saying is, is um, there, there is a shared um, classical Christian vision with the, the, the goodness of, uh, of the goods of creation redemptively applied and I so when in, in redemption that those goods of celebratory of all good created things I mean I think this is a continuity between the Thomistic line and, and the reform line that 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 this is what you see rather than a pure like puritanical yeah. in its extreme sense negation of the created goods and so what you're here seeing is sort of the the, the resurrection vindication of the created order yeah. Which is something I think is a very strong continuity with the Thomistic uh, classical school. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I think that's an important part yeah. of it. And, yeah. and another thing I would add would be just the fact of the saying we're not going to take uh, student loans. Um, it it um, it puts on the students a right at the very beginning. I need to be financially aware and I need to be thinking about how am I going to make this work. Mm. And I think it it creates a creativity. Um, in a whole host of different directions. Uh, one of our grads is a very successful contractor mm. because he started doing construction to get himself through NSA. I met him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, there are a number of different stories like that of just the fact of I need to pay for school mm -hmm. um, makes you uh, somebody who produces. And I, I think that that's one of the real um, struggles that we have right now, this, this sort of quintessential millennial and the failure to launch mm -hmm. um, um, problem is. I, I think a lot of that starts in our college years where we say you got four years in this imaginary world living off of imaginary money with no real consequences yeah. and a cafeteria that takes care of everything. Yeah. Um, right. If you remove all that and just say, listen, you're 18, you're an adult, figure it out. Right. Um, then I think you get a much steeper um, curve, you know, upward trajectory right. to adulting, right. which results in also a lot of entrepreneurial activity. And, it, and it affirms the dignity of the person created in the Oh, exactly of, right. Yeah. Because an actual agent. Yes. Yeah, an agent, yeah. a sub-creator. Yeah. This reminds me of something that a friend of mine, David Stocker, who's, in a, who's a, an architect in Dallas, who's, uh, builds mansions for a living. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. But, but one of the things that, that he confirmed for me was something that I suspected was the case, and that is uh, a, a flat lot is one of the most difficult things to work with because yeah. there are too many possibilities yeah. but when you have constraints uh -huh. it forces you to be creative to deal with 
the limitations. Yeah, no, I think it's true. Well, it's the, you know, Herodotus, you know, soft lands produce soft men. Yes. Um, I think there's something about, like, this is hard. We're, we're, we're going to make you work really hard, right. and it produces people who then actually curve towards work, and right. they right. embrace it. Right, and so now the, the problem, or the problem uh, is, is framed within the, the sort of the question, how, uh, how can I make this happen rather than, you yeah. know, this is impossible. Right. Right, right. right. Well, we're, we're getting to the point where we need to wrap things up. Um, is there anybody that uh, has a question that just has been burning that has to be asked before we end the show? <laughs> John. Got one, John? John. <laughs> I knew it had to be John. John, John is, this, is, this is characteristic John Sunday. <laughs> John, John introduces a topic at the very end and they can go for another hour. half hour. <laughs> Well, the number one great book school, I, I know what it is. Did you remember what it is? I don't remember. It's, it's a Torianus program at, at oh, uh, Biola. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So a hat tip to the guys who are familiar with Biola. Yeah. But anyway, they were number one, which is a great thing because we have some kids from our church that go to Biola. Anyway, uh, anything else? Anything anybody wants to say before we wrap up? Glenn, Tom, Ben? Just thanks for coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having yeah, me. Really you. appreciate the chance. Oh, this has been great. Be another opportunity. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Tom has been slumming with Glenn and me for a yeah. long time. <laughs> we well, need to get off. I, I would just add, I've been listening to the podcast for a while now. I really appreciate it. So it actually oh, is a real honor you. to be on it. So. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank yeah. you very much, Ben. It's been great to have you. And thank you for all the folks who are listening out there in Pugcast land. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>